So beginning the Dhamma talk with the Namo Tassa. Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Samma Sambhutasa Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Samma Sambhutasa Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Samma Sambhutasa So you're probably wondering about this novel arrangement up here. (laughs) We've decided tonight to do something different. And you all have been spending the day ardently, with determination and patience, been practicing metta for the difficult person. So tonight, by way of inspiration and encouragement and lightness of heart we're going to tell you stories stories that encapsulate and express the spirit of metta that Arya was talking so beautifully about last night some of these stories are Buddhist some of them are just stories about in quotes, regular people rising to the occasion and really living the spirit of metta and expressing and living the highest potential of us as human beings. Some of these stories might be quite touching and you might think, oh, I could not possibly do that but we wouldn't be telling you this story these stories if we couldn't all do this so please remember these are stories about other people but they're also stories about all of us and the potential that we all have and the power of metta so without further ado first story I'm going to tell you illustrates so beautifully and in a straightforward way the power of metta. It's about an Italian Buddhist monk and in the 1940s he decided to walk from Europe to India. So he was on his way either in Turkey or in Iran, when he encountered a group of robbers. It was in an isolated place. And these robbers asked for his money. And Venerable Lokanata said that he didn't carry any money. But the robbers not knowing that he was a Buddhist monk and not knowing that Buddhist monks don't carry money, they insisted that he must have some money. And Venerable Lokanata again said that he had none. And so the robbers then said, well then, if you don't give us your money, we are going to kill you. And Venerable Lokanata said, well, if you are going to kill me, then please give me 10 minutes so that I can say my final prayers. And the robbers decided that they would give him these 10 minutes. So Venerable Lokanata sat down on the ground and started to cultivate metta 
towards his potential murderers. He simply cultivated this benevolent uh, thought for them to be happy and well. And as he was radiating metta towards them, this man's heart started to break up and they softened. And after the 10 minutes, Venerable Lokanata stood up and said that now they, the robbers, could do with him whatever they wanted. And then the robbers said, um, actually, we can't kill you because you are a religious person. Please continue your journey. The next story I want to tell is a story about the power of metta to create harmony. I'm sure many of you have heard of Deepa Ma. She was a Bengali woman who moved to Myanmar when she was quite young, married. In her middle years, she experienced a string of tragedies. Her husband died, her son died, and she lost her health, she lost her strength of mind, and she was pretty much bedridden. A wise doctor in Burma then told her, well, you should go meditate, because if you stay like this, you're going to die. As a younger woman, she had wanted to meditate, but her husband had not allowed her to do this, and she was so busy with her family. So finally, the time was ripe, and she went to the Mahasi Meditation Center in Yangon. And within a very short time, about five days, well, to begin with, she had to crawl up the steps to the meditation hall. She was so weak. Weak in mind, weak in body. But in about five days, she experienced quite significant insight. And after this, she regained her health. She regained what had been quite a buoyant personality. Some years later, Jack Cornfield, who is a senior meditation teacher in America, but then was a very young man on the Buddhist path in India, asked Deepa Ma what was in her mind. And she answered quietly, loving kindness, concentration, and peace. She had quite amazing powers, her concentration was very strong, and Manindra had taught her the idis, the spiritual powers. She could do things that quite boggle the mind. She could be in two places at once. She could read minds. Manindra taught her these, but then quite wisely told her once she'd accomplished them to stop doing that. So she did. And in 1963, she quietly moved back to India, back to Calcutta, and lived with her daughter and her granddaughter in a flat, in an apartment building. When they got there, the atmosphere of this building was really terrible. It was full of people, bad neighbors, all of whom had grudges against everyone else. But when Deepa Ma moved in, she began to teach first her neighbor and then almost everybody else in the building. She began to teach them meditation. Meditation in daily life. And just her being there had an effect on everybody. 
So eventually more and more inhabitants of the building became ardent and accomplished meditators. And what that peace, that loving kindness, that concentration in Deepama's mind was having profound effects because eventually the whole building became a haven of peace and harmony. And people said they could feel it when they walked in. The whole place had changed. This is also the power of metta. And it wasn't just a building and a long residence that could do it. Sometimes ten minutes in Deepama's company would deeply and profoundly affect the course of somebody's life. A Western yogi who spent a mere ten minutes with Deepama later said, the entire way he saw life and the entire course of his life changed in that ten minutes. This is also the power of metta. The next story is actually something that has two separate incidents. And these stories play in Israel, in a Palestinian refugee camp. And they show how the boundaries are broken up how these two men started to see no difference between Israelis and Palestinians. So in the first case, this happened in 2005, Ahmed, a Palestinian boy of 12 years, was shot in a refugee camp by an Israeli soldier because Ahmed was carrying a plastic toy gun and the Israeli soldier thought that it was a real gun so he shot him. The father of Ahmed had in his young years uh, become a fighter for the Palestinians. At 16 he joined the Palestinian uh, fighters to fight against the Israelis. And as he said at that time, for him it was so clear that the Israelis were the big enemy and that one needed to take vengeance and kill. But later then it turned out that actually he didn't kill any uh, person during those years. At the time when his son son Ahmed was shot, the father was 43 years old and he had become much more tempered and also he saw things in a different way. After his dear son, Ahmed, had been killed, he had decided to offer the organs of his son to Israeli kids. And with this deed, six young Israelis' kids' lives were saved. They could live. And when the father of Ahmed was asked how he could do such an extraordinary act of generosity. He said, it's the love for children. They need help regardless of their nationality or their religion.
the second incident deals or is about an Israeli man who was an operation officer in the Israeli army. And this happened in 2001. At that time, this Israeli man um, gave the orders to demolish a house in a certain village. And later on the same day, then they uh, closed off another small village nearby and um, initiated a, a curfew over that village. And late in the afternoon, he was sitting at his place in his room and looked out of the window and behind the fence where the villagers were locked in, so to say, so to speak, he saw a group of little Arab children, Palestinian girls. And at that time, he was talking on the phone to his wife. And the wife told him that life was very hard for her and that on that day she had been so busy and she couldn't organize somebody to pick up their three-year-old daughter from kindergarten. And so the wife was very distressed. And the man, hearing the distress of his wife, being reminded of his little daughter, and seeing right in front of him these little Palestinian girls, in a moment, it hit him so profoundly, realizing that these little Palestinian girls were in no way different from his own little daughter. And then and there, he resigned from the army, and later, then he he found an organization <coughs> called Combatants for Peace, which is a Palestinian-Israeli peace organization. <coughs> and he founded it together with a Palestinian man. The next story also comes from the Middle East. And it's about a Palestinian doctor. His entire life, from when he was born, has been in the Gaza Strip. He was born in a refugee camp. But he was very fortunate to have a loving family and a good mind and obviously a good heart because he worked very hard at school and somehow managed to get an education. He went to Egypt. He got a medical degree. He married his sweetheart. They began to have a family. He wanted very much to help the people in the Gaza, help the Palestinian people. He went to Harvard and got a public health degree, a master's degree in public health, and came back with the profound wish to help, and not to just help the Palestinian people, but to build bridges between Palestinian people and Israeli people. Because as a very young man, he had been employed for pocket money in the home of some Israeli people. And even though they were the other, the enemy, that experience made a a lasting impression on, 
on him, their kindness, the fact that they were really the same in terms of being a family as his family was. So what was born in him at that time was a lifelong ambition to be an active peacemaker. So after he came back from Harvard, he was the first Palestinian doctor to manage to get a job in an Israeli hospital. And for him, this was quite an incredible challenge because to get from where he lived in Gaza to Israel was incredibly difficult. He could never guarantee one day to the next whether he would be allowed across the border to go to work, whether he would be allowed to go home. And just to get across the border took sometimes several hours. One day when he was in Israel working, his wife became very, very ill. And he managed to get her to the hospital in Israel after a very long time. It took almost 24 hours. By the time she got there, it was too late, and she eventually died. So he was left as the father of many children. I think it was seven children. It's the only sole caregiver going back and forth between Gaza and Israel. Two of his daughters at this point were teenagers and they went to America to these two um, summer camps where Israeli and Palestinian kids learned together to be peacemakers and learned to meet each other as human beings. They had also absorbed this lesson from their father about peace. Not very long after his wife died, there was um, an infatata and a response by Israel, and the doctor's house was shelled by accident, apparently. Three of his daughters were killed. And at that point he really saw he had a choice. He had a choice standing amidst the rubble of his house, seeing his daughters gone. There was very little left of them, actually. He realized that he was faced with two options. He could choose darkness and hatred and the poison of revenge or light thinking of the future thinking of his children thinking of all the Israeli children in the hospital where he worked so he made the the choice to refuse to hate and wrote a book called called I Shall Not Hate. It's a very moving book if you ever have the chance to read it. And he's gone on to work tirelessly for peace in Israel, in Palestine. Now he lives in Canada with his family and is a light in the world. And it's such a wonderful, wonderful illustration of the power of metta to completely prevent hatred of any kind, no matter what, no matter what. Now, the next story takes us to France. To France at the end of the 19th century. And it is about the patron saint of France, Saint Teresa, Saint Teresa of Lisieux, who worked many small but actually big wonders. At the age of 15, she 
entered a convent. She wanted to become a nun, a Christian nun. And so she entered the Carmelite order. And we must know that the Carmelites live off very secluded. Once one is in the monastery, they stay within the monastery. They don't go out and it's very um, rare that they can um, uh, have visitors. And so entering this convent, one is faced with a group of women, of nuns. One has to live together with them. It's not that one can choose with whom one wants to live. It's not so that these are all your best friends <laughs> that you take along. And so then one has to sit next to the one who has entered the order before you. And then later, the next person who enters the order sits on the other side of you. So it's this seniority order. So then one lives together with all these women, these nuns, during daytime. One has the meals together, one does the prayers together, everything together. It's a little bit like if I, we now would say, okay, my dear friends here, you're going to stay here for the rest of your life. You don't leave the meditation center. You're not allowed to have many visitors. That's it. Got it? (laughs) (laughs) So, Teresa had one nun that she couldn't stand. This other nun behaved in a way that Teresa didn't like. She spoke in a way that she didn't like. She ate in a way she didn't like. And every morning they went into a small chapel to spend time in contemplation, silent contemplation. And so this other nun was sitting just in front of Teresa and in the stillness of that chapel while doing the contemplation, this other nun would make funny noises. And it wasn't kind of in a rhythm, but very erratic, irregular, so one never knew when another noise would come. And so that really made uh, Teresa very upset. It annoyed, annoyed her a great deal. So every morning, Teresa was sitting there in the chapel and she knew she should be contemplating. But all that happened for her was, you know, getting tense. When would the next sound come? And getting annoyed. And so then after some time, she realized that this would go on for the rest of her life. (laughs) And she also realized that it was very unlikely that this other nun would change. But then she reflected that maybe there must be some, something good, something beautiful in this nun because she too was chosen by God to become a nun. And so Teresa decided that there must be something beautiful in this nun. Maybe she simply hadn't discovered it yet. And she then realized that the only way to bring about the change was that she herself had to change. And so instead of feeding her aversion 
or ill will, annoyance towards this nun, she tried to be very friendly, very kind to this other nun. She tried to treat her as she would treat her best friend. So when she, uh, when their ways crossed in a corridor, corridor, Teresa would give her a beautiful smile, or she started to make little presents for this nun, or she would hold open a door for this nun. So Teresa really tried very hard to treat this nun as she was her best and closest friend. And then, after some time, one day, this nun came towards her with a smiling face and said, Teresa, I really don't know why you love me so much. And Teresa thought to herself, well, if you would know. (laughs) Teresa's, St. Teresa's life was very short. At the age of 24, she died of tuberculosis. Changing gears now to America in the mid-1940s with a story that beautifully exhibits how metta can sometimes manifest as heroic selflessness. In the 1940s, of course, It was the time of World War II. And at that time, four men met at Harvard. Uh, The Divinity College was training, at that time, army chaplains. So these four guys came together as chaplain designates. One was a Methodist, one was Jewish, One was Catholic, and the other was a minister in something called the Reformed Church of America. I don't exactly know what that is, but... So these men became friends, and they were shipped out. After they graduated, they were shipped out to Europe on a troop ship called the Dorchester, They were joined by about a thousand other people, both civilians and uh, military, members of the military. All of them were on their way to postings in Europe. When the Dorchester was somewhere between North America and Greenland, it took a torpedo hit from a German submarine. And as it had happened, it happened at night. And the first thing that happened is all the lights in the ship went out. And there was mass panic. You can imagine. There were thousands of men in a ship, a thousand men in a ship that carried, was built. It was built as a cruise liner to carry about 300 people. So all these people were crammed into this ship. It was dark. The ship was sinking. The chaplains rose to the occasion. They calmed people down as they could. They created order as they could. And it became quickly apparent there weren't enough life jackets for everybody. They distributed all the life jackets they could They took off their own life jackets. They gave them to the men around them. And then 
they surrendered themselves to their own fate, their own kamma. And it's very touching to read accounts by men who survived, as not very many did, actually, even if they had life jackets. The water was freezing. It took a while to get rescued. The ship was in a convoy, but ten minutes in water that cold will kill almost anyone. So only 300 people or so survived. But to read the accounts of the men that survived is extremely touching. A man named Grady Clark said, As I swam away from the ship, I looked back. The flares had lighted everything. The bow came up high, and then she slid under. The last thing I saw, the four chaplains were up there, praying for the safety of the men. They had done everything they could. I did not see them again. They had given their life jackets away, and of course all four of them perished. And according to other eyewitnesses, other men who survived, they could hear the prayers of these chaplains across the water, prayers in different languages, prayers in English, prayers in Hebrew, prayers in Latin, wishing well, wishing safety, wishing life, knowing that they would lose theirs, knowing this was what they could do and this was the best thing they could do as their lives came to an end to wish others life. With the next story, we go to Switzerland, to present-day Switzerland, what it happened last year. Not so present anymore. (laughs) And... This story highlights this aspect of metta or the spirit of metta that metta does in the spirit of metta we don't want to hurt another person. We want don't want to hurt him or her in any way, even a slight minor way. And this was told to me by Roger, a friend from the meditation group in Winterthur, where I was staying for the last two years. And he is a musician, and he was making music together with two friends who who were, who are not Buddhist, so they were playing music together and then they had a break and they started to talk and then the talk evolved around a certain topic. And then one of his uh, friends, Peter, said that in regard to this topic, it was like this. But then the other friend, Dave, said, no, that this was not correct, that it was like that. And again, Peter said, no, no, he was sure that it was like this. And Dave said, I am sure it's like that. So each um, defended his own point of view, his own opinion. And then... Peter then said, well, you know, should we make a bet? 
because you are so sure, I am so sure. So let's make a bet. What should we bet? But then they said, no, I don't want to make a bet. But Peter said, well, if you are so sure that you are right, let's, let's make a bet. And Dave said again, no, I don't want to. And so they left it with that. And it was something that they could find out immediately who was right and who was wrong. So they went online and then found out that Dave uh, was right and Peter uh, was wrong. And so then Peter said, well, you were so sure, Peter said to Dave, you were so sure that you were right. Why didn't want, why didn't you uh, want to make a bet? And Dave said, because I didn't want that you would lose the bet. Not only does Metta not want to harm in the slightest way any other beings, Metta always works for the good of others as opposed to the good of oneself, as opposed to one's selfish self-interest. And a beautiful example of this is Frederick Banting. Banting was a physician, a fairly obscure surgeon in Toronto in the 1920s. And he had an idea about diabetes, which at the time was invariably a fatal disease. No one understood what caused it and there was no idea at all of a treatment. The only thing people could do if somebody was diabetic was to restrict almost anything that was sugar or carbohydrate. And sometimes people got a couple of years of life as a result of this, but sometimes they died of starvation, basically. So this disease was terrible. It killed people. Whoever got it died. Children, adults. Banting had an idea. It was a little off the wall. So he went to the University of Toronto to talk to an expert in diabetes there who also thought this idea was a little off the wall, but as a concession, said, okay, well, you can have some lab space over there and I'll give you a lab assistant. So you go do do the work you want to do and, you know, let's talk later. So Banting and this lab assistant, Best, was his last name, Banting and Best, methodically, starting with work on dogs and eventually in humans, isolated insulin, and then gave it to first animals and then a child who was diabetic, and it was a miracle. It worked. Well, soon, of course, word got out of this miracle, and in 1923, Banting and the director of the lab were given the Nobel Prize in medicine. It was quite a huge discovery. Banting was furious that Best had been left out of the Nobel Prize, offered half of his Nobel Prize to Best, and not only did that happen, but something even more wonderful. Now, I don't know if any of you are involved in biomedicine today, in big pharma 
today. It's all about money. It's all about profit. It's a huge, huge industry. And people are climbing all over each other to get patents for medicines that cure diseases because those patents will make them very, very rich. But what did Banting do with insulin? He could have lived the life of an incredibly rich man. But no. He sold the patent. He got a patent for insulin. He sold the patent to the University of Toronto for one dollar so that everybody who needed it could get insulin. He, as a result, was a very rich man, but not in terms of money, in terms of heart. My last story takes us to China, about 60, 70 years back. And it shows that fake meta also works. <laughs> so it was a, this story is about this young woman who married a young man and as was, cu- was custom, she had to move in at her parents-in-law house where the son, her husband, was living. And as it happened, she immediately started to fight with her mother-in-law about pity issues of how the household should be run. wasn't anything major, just these little uh, daily things. And so, very soon it started to escalate and they were fighting each other. And so very soon, her mother-in-law thought that she was an arrogant child. And the young woman thought that her mother-in-law was an old witch. (laughs) And things got worse to the degree where the young woman could no longer stand her mother-in-law and she hated her so much that she wanted her to die. She wanted to kill her mother-in-law. So in her great desperation, she went to see a doctor, told him the circumstances and asked the doctor to please give her some poison which would kill her mother-in-law. The doctor listened and said, okay, I will give you some poison, but, you know, if I give you some strong poison which killed your mother-in-law instantly, then everybody would uh, think that it was you. And then they would find out that you had the poison from me. So that would get me into a bad situation. So I will give you some poison that is quite weak and only will take effect over some time, after some time. So you need to mix these herbs uh, with the food for your mother and then after some time, after some months, it will um, take effect. And also the doctor said, whenever you serve the meal to your mother-in-law, you have to be friendly to her, you have to be nice to her, be very courteous when you give her her plate of food. 
say some nice words that she should enjoy the food. And when she finishes, asks her if she liked the food or what else she would like. And also at other times, ask her if she needed something. So be very humble and sweet so that nobody will suspect you. The young woman agreed, and so she took the poison uh, back home. And that very evening, she started to mix the poison uh, to the mother-in-law's food. And as the doctor had told her, offered uh, the meal very politely to her mother-in-law. And as the daughter-in-law started to become friendlier, nicer, the mother-in-law started to think, well, maybe she is not as arrogant as I had thought. Maybe I was wrong about her. And so the mother-in-law started to treat the daughter-in-law in a more friendly way too. Sometimes making a compliment about her cooking or making a compliment on how she was managing the household. And later on, they started to have little exchanges uh, with each other, exchanging some gossip about this person, about that person, neighbors, and so on. And as the mother-in-law started to become more friendly towards the young woman, the young woman also started to think, ah, well, this mother-in-law is not this old witch that I thought she was, but actually she is quite nice. And so they started to get along better and better, and after a month or so, they had become the best friends really getting along with each other very well. And then the young woman realized that all the poison that she had added to her mother-in-law's food, that this was surely to go go to kill her mother-in-law. And so she got very sad and anxious. And she went back to the doctor and said, Doctor, I was wrong. My mother-in-law is actually a very nice person. I shouldn't have poisoned her. Please, um, give me an antidote to that poison. And the doctor sat there quietly, listening to the young woman and said, I am sorry, I can't help you. There is no antidote. And when the young woman heard this, she got very distressed and she started to cry, saying that she was going to kill herself. And the doctor asked, why would you want to kill yourself? And the young woman said, because I have poisoned such a nice person and now she's going to die. So I should take... Instead, my, uh, I should take my own life to punish, to punish myself for the horrible thing I did. The doctor sat there quietly and then he started to chuckle. And the girl, the young woman said, how can you laugh? And then the doctor said, because there is really no need to worry for you. There is no antidote to this poison because in the very first place I didn't give you any poison. All I gave you was a harmless herb.
And my last story is about how when we offer metta, that metta ripples out and touches many, many others. It's about a man named Dale Beatty. He was in the army in Iraq. And in 2004, he was out on a patrol route when the vehicle they were in hit a landmine. He lost both his legs from the knees down. And he was sent home and was hospitalized for about a year in Walter Reed Army Medical Center, healing from his wounds, getting fitted for prosthetic legs. And he was the sort of person who always had a positive attitude. And so the way he put it was, well, it wasn't quite like losing a fingernail, but he'd seen a lot of other people injured a lot worse, and they made good use of their lives, and they had happy lives. So he was determined when he got home to North Carolina, where his family was, that he would do this. But he didn't know how. For starters, they had a house that wasn't wheelchair accessible, and he didn't know even how he would be able to live in his own house. A member of a local church who happened to be... um, on the board of the local builders association heard about Petey and sprung into action. And he arranged for volunteers to come. He arranged for building materials. And the whole community gathered around Beatty's father donated some land. And because Beatty himself had skills, he was the general contractor to build a new house for himself, for his wife, for his two kids. He hadn't had to pay anything for it because of the generosity and the metta of the whole community. Shortly after that, he met another man in a nearby town named Dave Marshall. Dave was also a veteran. And he'd been a veteran, he was a veteran of Vietnam, so it had been a very long time for him, living with a very difficult situation. He'd lost a leg not because of combat, because, but because he'd been exposed to Agent Orange and there'd been some complications. And because he had no money or, and no resources, very limited resources, he, sometimes he had to crawl to the bathroom because the door wasn't big enough to fit his wheelchair. And when Beatty heard about this, of course he was filled with compassion. He could relate completely. And he sprung into action, doing the same thing for Dave Morrill as the community had done for him. And to keep the metta going, to keep paying it forward, there's an expression you hear now, rather than paying it back, you pay it forward, you give it to somebody else, and you keep the metta going. What BT then did is to start a nonprofit organization that works in the same way. And now all over America, in dozens of places and in dozens of situations, veterans are having homes built, having homes remodeled. Thanks to the goodwill of BT, thanks to the goodwill of thousands of people, the meta just keeps going out. And it's such a wonderful example, an everyday down-home example 
of how you don't have to be a hero. You just have to respond. And then the response ripples out and touches other people. And for them, then, it may ripple out again. Metta works on behalf of others and goes out into avenues and ways we have no way of knowing. We each have many other stories we could tell tonight. We'll keep it at that. With the deep wish that your metta today, your metta in these last days, creates for yourself and all those around you happiness and peace, as it has for all these other people. Let's sit together quietly for a moment. Let the words settle. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.